Welcome to Witch City Witches, a podcast from Salem, Massachusetts, exploring the practice of witchcraft. We explore witchcraft through many different lenses, including personal practices, tarot, astrology, ritual, and so much more. This is our very first official episode, and I'm Anna, and I'm here with my friend Becca, and we're going to talk about how we both became witches and what that means to us. And it says today is the solstice, happy solstice, and we're also going to talk about the ways that we celebrate the solstice in our traditions. Yeah, I am... Looking forward to more sunlight. <laughs> yes. New England is uh, is not great in the winter for people who need sunlight. So the solstice is very much looking to be on the other side of it. <laughs> yes. As someone who grew up in the tropics, I really hate the dark. So I'm ready for more sunlight. So, Becca, I guess I will ask you, how did you become a witch? I think... I think it started when I was a very young child. Um, I was um, I was raised Roman Catholic, but my family was my but they weren't very good at being Catholic. Um, and I spent a lot of time running around in the woods, and I became obsessed with Greek mythology as a very young child. I remember I saw the uh, the '80s version of Clash of the Titans in the theater when I was about seven. And I was very upset with how they had changed the mythology. (laughs) (laughs) That Caribus had nothing to do with Medusa. Why was he guarding it? Like, it just, I was very upset about that. So that was me as a seven-year-old. So you were basically (laughs) the same as you are now. Yes. 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 I understand. I, you know, it's it's flowing straight here. Um... (laughs) You know, it's yeah. funny, I don't think I knew that you grew up Roman Catholic because I grew up Roman Catholic too. So I guess here we are, two renounced Roman Catholics who are now practicing witches. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, <laughs> that's wonderful. <laughs> uh, my mother, who has uh, also left the, the Catholic Church uh, and is now a practicing Quaker, um, once said that between the two of us, we would make a good Catholic because I believe in magic and she believes in Christianity. So, <laughs> <laughs> although my... Anyway, I won't get into my, my mom's belief in magic. But, um, yeah, so... Yeah, I, well, you can save that for a later episode. Yeah. How families deal with our paganism. Yes. Yeah, there we go. Um, but, um, yeah, so I was obsessed with the, um, the Greek gods. And, like, I, as a small child, I was, like, out in the, the, the woods building mud shrines to Rhea. Um, and that was, you know... And I had this kind of... When I was a little kid, I had this revelation that... Uh, Rhea and Kronos were um, Mother Nature and Father Time, mm-hmm. <laughs> and like so that was like my uh, my personal religion as a small child. Um, and you know, when I got into high school, actually, what brought me into witchcraft was um, actually was the novel *Moose of Avalon* by Marion Zimmer Bradley, who I have since found out was a terrible person. But right, but that novel. I was reading at the same time that um, Laurie Cabot's *The Power of the Witch* came out, mm-hmm. and you know her, you know, being in Massachusetts and her being such a presence in Massachusetts of modern witchcraft, like really, like in reading this novel, like because I was really big into King Arthur as well, um, so I got this novel as just a King Arthur thing, and I was like, oh, you know, this whole, this whole, you know, female-centered pagan practice that seems like a really cool thing you know no one does that anymore and then you know suddenly like it was in the news that you know 
Lori Cabot was, you know, being named the official witch of Massachusetts by the governor. And I was like, oh, people are doing that. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I, I did all the traditional Scott Cunningham, you know, solitary Wicca books and all of that. And yeah, in college, I moved to Boston and actually in high school, I had three friends and we were, we would, you know, get witchcraft books and do the spells in them. And um, it was very the craft. <laughs> um, As all teenage girls wish for. Um, and in, in Boston, I started meeting more people that um, were more, you know, serious in their practice. And it sort of just kind of led from there. So, you know, I grew up in the Catholic Church, too, and I was actually an altar girl, and, uh, you know, I was not exposed to a lot of different religious beliefs growing up, so I didn't know that there were other things that I was allowed to be. You know, I knew that we were Roman Catholic, I knew that there were Protestants, and that my mom wasn't too keen on them. Uh, I knew that there were Jewish folks, uh, because one of my aunts uh, converted to Judaism, and I knew about atheism, and I really didn't know about anything else. But what I knew is that I was absolutely fascinated with ritual. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually lived in Germany for part of my childhood, and that's where my fascination with ritual really started happening, because I went through First Communion uh, in Germany. My German was not very good at the time, and so I got to observe the mechanics of ritual sort of apart from... Uh, you know, all the stuff that goes along with it. And so I became an altar girl uh, who did not actually understand anything that was being said, to be honest, but I was so excited to wear a robe and light candles and get to participate in the actual ritual of it. Um, because, uh, you know, Catholic Mass, as I experienced it, was very much a uh, observer sport. It's not a participatory thing, mm -hmm. right? You have the people who are performing the rituals and everyone else is, watch is watching and I wanted to be involved. And that's actually one of the things that I like about, you know, uh, at least the way that I practice witchcraft, that it is, you know, it's, it's not an observer thing. Everyone participates. Um, and so I, you know, just became obsessed with ritual and, you know, wearing cool robes uh, as a nine-year-old. And then I, you know, I moved back to South America. I actually spent many years in Uruguay uh, which, where I was very much an outcast and an outsider, and I started learning about witchcraft through books, and if there are any other witches there, I have to say I never met any of them. So it was a very, very, you know, solitary path. Um, and then I got to move back to Brazil, where I was born, when I was just 14 or 15. And Brazil, amazingly, has a very thriving witch community, and uh, they were very involved online and I was lucky in that um, there's an organization that was founded I don't even know how long ago but it's called Abra Wicca but it's the Brazilian Association of Witchcraft and there's a bit of a discussion of Wicca versus witchcraft there that we can save for another day but you know these folks were hosting um, public rituals on all the Sabbaths and the full moons in uh, major cities and at mm -hmm. city parks and I was living in Brasilia the capital city so it turned out that 10 minutes from my apartment there was you know a group holding public ceremonies but, you know, I was a teenager, and there was no way I was getting permission from my mom, so I just participated in online forums for many years. Mm -hmm. And then when I was 17, my mom happened to go out of town for a weekend that happened to be Litha, when they were having a Litha celebration, and so I secretly went to this ritual. 
um, you know, 17 year old girl, I went out into the middle of the city park to meet witches in the dark. Yeah, so I'm not saying that that was the smartest thing I've ever done, but I'm glad I did it. <laughs> there's, there's there's a bravery that comes from being an idiot teenager that you just can't replicate as an adult. Right? Yeah, it's definitely true. And so um, I, you know, I started going to these rituals and they were large rituals. There were tons of people, but I happened to sort of get closer to the people who were organizing and leading these. And these were the people who were the founders of, you know, Abra Wika. And um, I met many different people, but the one that I ended up sticking with is Glinda. She was one of the founders of Abra Wika and she was doing a lot of that public work. And she, to this day, is the high priestess that I am closest to. She you know, ended up being my initiator and all that. Um, and the good thing is that by the time that she got around to asking me my age, because you know I was a minor, I had already turned 18, so <laughs> I didn't have to figure out how to ask my mom for permission. So sometimes it feels like things really line up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and now here we are in Salem. <laughs> I want to say personally that because I've never really been part of a, you know, you're talking about like the path and you initiate. I've never really been part of an initiatory path. I've joined groups and they have, I think this is a very common um, experience for people uh, in witchcraft communities is that groups dissolve. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of reasons that groups dissolve. A lot of it is interpersonal drama. Honestly, in the Boston area, is a lot of people finish school and move. Yeah, that's that. And so, um, I've been part of groups, and for one reason or another, they didn't really lead anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so, I have to say, like, I personally feel a lot of imposter syndrome about my practice because so much of it is just I made it up myself. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've. I read all the books, I try to like, you know, incorporate everything. I like as you did, I was on a lot of internet forums. And, you know, internet forums is really where I found um, Hellenic polytheism because I do, you know, I mentioned, you know, Ray and Kronos and my love of Greek mythology, and that's really I tried really hard to uh, focus on the Celtic pantheon and it's just never spoken to me. Mm-hmm. Um and since that's the most popular one, also that's another reason that I've had uh, issues finding, you know, the group. Um, but you know, the online was where I found um, other people who were focused on the Greek pantheon, and um, although a lot of them are reconstructionists, and if I don't know if you know any hardcore reconstructionists, but they are like the conservative Republicans of the pagan world, and if it didn't happen before 1000 BC, they don't want to hear about it. Mm. Um, So there's a lot of problems there as well. So I think my own practice is, um, it's very eclectic and it's very what works for me. And I do, like when people say like, whoa, tell me about this thing. It's just like, well, this works for me. But Mm -hmm. I, I, and I definitely, I have that sort of anxiety that I don't want to tell people like, this is the way that this happens because it's been so kind of pieced together in my own world. Well, I mean, the reality is is that so much of the modern practice of witchcraft is reconstructed, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if we look at the history of, uh, of Wicca, then it's something that Gerald Gardner created. It's not something, you know, he claims that it came from other covens that were already practicing, but we can't 
actually prove it. Yeah, I actually, uh, I brought some books with me, and I do have this from when I was a teenager, the, uh, the Janet and Stuart Farrar's Eight Sabbaths for the Witches, and um, what this showed me was that there's a lot of naked British people. <laughs> nice. Oh, so, yep, yep. So um, that was just like, mm, I'm not sure that's, that's really for me. Um, so, um, but it did, it's, you know, it's definitely was foundational that to, to, to read that kind of background of, you know, these are some of the, the people who started um, some of the original British covens. And I think that's important to, to, to understand is that um, there's a lot of people, there are, you know, witchcraft, it comes from so many different places and that uh, people... I guess the practice of Wicca is very new. It's, you know, it was started in Britain in the 50s. Um, it does have, you know, roots and things that are much older, but that as a religion is, uh, is very new. And, you know, a lot of it comes from, you know, old hedge witch practices. A lot of it comes from, you know, high ceremonial magic, like the Golden Dawn, and the OTO and other sort of ceremonial magic groups. Um, so yeah, I mean, so that's like, like I feel this this imposter syndrome, but then I look at people who have start, started these things and I'm like, but they all made their stuff up too. So why do I feel bad about making stuff up? But at the same time, I think that the, the issue comes up with, uh, which is in very much a uh, topic these days of cultural appropriation mm -hmm. and what is okay to incorporate into my practice and what is not for me. Yeah, I think, so my background is also heavily shamanic. I actually describe what I practice as shamanic witchcraft because it's sort of become the easiest way to describe it. And for me, what is really important is the idea of direct revelation, which means that uh, you know, I don't want anyone to take my word for what works and for what doesn't. Mm -hmm. I want people to try it and experience it themselves. You know, shamanism right. is very much about direct revelation and direct experience. So, uh, you know, when I'm leading a shamanic circle, people are going on their own journeys and they're experiencing it. I'm not going on a journey for them. And so I, I really apply that to all things linked to the occult and witchcraft practices. Try it. Because at least to me, the goal of witchcraft is um, twofold. It's to you know connect with something bigger than ourselves in whatever way you define the divine and the elements. And it's personal growth, right? It's about turning inwards and knowing yourself and finding power from that. And so if what you're doing is bringing you closer to either of those goals, I think it's valid. And I think that that's more important than you know saying that you have a lineage or a tradition or where did you get it from. But I do say that with the caveat is that, you know, when you are reading books and learning from other people, try and understand where those things are coming from. Because one thing that I've seen happen that can be kind of dangerous is that someone will read something in a book and then they'll say, oh, I'm going to take this, but I'm going to modify it. And then in modifying it, they sort of lose the essence of why that worked in the first place. Mm -hmm. You know, context is so important. And that actually gets me back to what you were saying about cultural appropriation specifically because I deal within shamanism and in a different episode we're going to talk about what shamanism means because there's a whole thing to unpack there too, is, uh, you know, practices where, uh, well, white people, there's no way to kind of sugarcoat that, where white people go and visit indigenous cultures or, uh, you know, practices and they will, uh, you know, record a sacred song 
and then they'll take that sacred song out of that context and just try and use that sacred song, you know, wherever they live. And they're surprised that it doesn't work. And the reality is, is that, you know, when you have practices that come out of, you know, indigenous cultures or, you know, people who have been working with spirits of the land, that's something that is contextual and it works within that context. So you can't take, you know, the sacred song of one land and then expect it to work somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So it's totally fine to learn but understand what you're learning and what works about it. You know, don't just take things out of context because then it won't work anymore. Right. Yeah, so that actually um, reminds me of something that, um, it's a term that I've seen a lot on the, the Hellenic, um, Hellenic groups online. It's often used very derisively, and it's the initials UPG, and it stands for Unverified Personal Gnosis. <laughs> and it's basically when you have had some sort of revelation, um, whether it be through shamanic work or a dream or just reading a book and say and putting two things together mm-hmm. that someone hasn't put together before, um, but it's it's coming from you and you can't back it up with uh, academic research and no one else seems to have this um, thought. So it's unverified personal gnosis. And I, a lot of my work comes from that. Like, mm-hmm. I do dream work where I communicate with my gods. I, you know, people will, when I say, well, when Hermes appears to me, he looks like this. And people are like, Hermes appears? Like, well, yes. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that's part of my practice is to, you know, to go into these states and to communicate directly with my gods. And, um... And so there's this, and so people really kind of put this thing down. And but I think that it is very important to, you know, religions didn't just happen. No one thousands of years ago, when these gods were first talked about, um, no matter what particular pantheon that you are practice that you work with, um, you know, no one had books to follow. They had personal experiences. These mm-hmm. names came from somewhere. Yeah, everything yeah. came from personal experience. <laughs> yeah. The problem is, is that now we have this notion that if something is old, it must be good and it must yeah. be right. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's a really harmful perception to have, especially looking at everything that we've been through, right? Especially, you know, we are both cis women practicing witches and there is a whole history of oppression of, you know, women and witches, especially in Salem, right? This place that we live in that's so loaded. And, you know, if things just kept being done the way they were before, we certainly wouldn't be allowed to be recording this podcast. And so just because something's always been done a certain way doesn't mean it's right or better. And, you know, just because it's been around a long time doesn't make it verified either. So I think that's really dangerous. And that's sort of the, the balance that we're constantly figuring out with witchcraft, right, is you do have to kind of look at tradition, but it has to be constantly evolving. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, witchcraft cannot be static. I do think that there is, you know, someone who has a lineage, I think that there's a lot of value in tradition. But one of the things that I have really enjoyed about working, you know, with Gwenda, who's been, you know, my person all these years, is that she has never said that anything that she teaches is right or is the only way. And she's never said that there's, you know, only one path or prevented me from learning more. You know, as this is a very convoluted way, I guess, to tell people about our backgrounds. But, uh, you know, once I worked with Winda, uh, you know, she was part of a tradition. She was actually uh, descended from old Dianic, old McFarland Dianic. Uh, it became the Dianic tradition of Brazil. I was actually one of the founding members of the Dianic tradition of Brazil. I was there at that meeting when that was established. And, you know, because politics happen, as you mentioned, there's always a lot of 
interpersonal complication in communities, you know, we ended up splitting from that. And so now I'm part of what's called the Triskelion tradition. It's very small, you know, based out of Brazil, but it is, you know, technically an offshoot of you know, McFarland, Old Dianic. Um, and as I continued working with Gwenda, you know, it never became one of those things where it's like, well, now you're in this tradition, you can't learn anything else. And so, uh, you know, one of the ways that I got to Salem, you know, because it's where I always wanted to be, apart from doing all the online forum stuff, I spent a lot of time in bookstores. And what that meant was giant bookstores at the mall in Brazil. And all the books that we have were translated from other languages. There weren't a lot of people writing about, you know, witchcraft in Portuguese. And so, uh, you know, I had to find the very tiny occult book section and I found a translated copy of Lori Cabot's Power of the Witch, you mm -hmm. know, which you've already mentioned. And uh, in my edition of it, uh, there was a picture of her in the back, you know, wearing her flowing black robes in the streets of Salem, living openly as a witch. And I was like, you know what, one day I'm going to go to Salem and I'm going to study with Lori Cabot. I decided this as a teenager. Mm -hmm. And I did. In 2007, I was initiated as a Cabot witch. So, um, you know, I met Lori in 2005 and I did, you know, her level one, you know, traditional, you know, witchcraft class, her level two, and then I was initiated as a Cabot witch in level three. And I did that with full blessings from Gwenda, you know, it's not, I didn't have to pick just one thing. She says, the more you know, the more you learn, the better. Mm -hmm. And I think that at least my personal belief is that when you're working with a teacher, if they tell you that only their way is right and that you can't learn from anyone else anymore, that to me is an immediate red flag. Definitely, definitely. So. That's, that's a level of control that you don't want to give to another person that, right. you know, like you don't want someone telling you what you're able to think or what you're able to right. learn but you know there yeah. are some traditions of witchcraft that do feel that way uh there are the purists who say that gardnerian is the only true witchcraft and then there's the alexandrians who you know came directly out of the gardnerians so they consider themselves pretty legit and one of the things that was happening in brazil back when i was still there is there was an annual uh, meeting called the bbb and that means bruxos brasileiros em brasilia it's brazilian witches in brasilia and, uh, you know, so they had, I got to attend that because I was already 18 and my boyfriend at the time was covering for me. I pretended I'd be at my boyfriend's house and I was actually sneaking out to do witchcraft. <laughs> um, because, you know, me being at a boy's house was more acceptable than me being out doing witchcraft. But there were people there presenting, you know, all sorts of topics and talking about different things. And the interesting thing is that the person, the people who were organizing this were part of, you know, the tradition that I was part of. And, um, Actually, Claudine Prieto, who is uh, one of the more famous witches in Brazil now, he was my initiator's initiator, and he was heavily involved in this, but he's someone who, you know, he's the one who brought McFarland tradition to Brazil, and here was this guy at this conference hosted by Claudine saying, oh, I'm an Alexandrian, and no other forms of witchcraft are valid. <laughs> so, you know, he'd come to an event organized by non-Alexandrians, and he was there telling everyone how, you know, what we were all doing wasn't real. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's super harmful. Yeah. There's there's a lot of people, um, it's certainly not uh, specific to the witchcraft community, but um, there are a lot of people on power trips. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people that, um, and I know that that's something that I've encountered several times. If something seems really cool and I get a little bit involved, then it's just like you start questioning the motives of the people who are putting things together. So I think that, that that's definitely something in the modern world as, you know, as there's more, 
it, it's both becomes more of a problem as things, you know, with, with the internet, um, you know, things are more available. Um, people who are, you know, and this definitely happens in Christian communities as well. You see those mega churches and, you know, you, there's definitely, you question the motives behind that. Um, and, you know, it's the same, I think, in all, um, in all groups that there are people who get involved and look to leadership positions so that they can have power over people. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's definitely, um, you know, that's definitely something that, um, yeah, yeah, needs to be looked out for. Well, I think we're a little off topic right now. But, no, that's okay. Yeah. I mean, but it's all important stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, witchcraft is something that's supposed to help people find personal power, but unfortunately, you know, every spiritual path, every human endeavor is filled with, you know, human vices and human mistakes. And so, unfortunately, egos do get involved. And that's actually a thing that we've seen a lot in Salem. You know, we, we want to talk about what it's like to be a practicing witch in Salem. And it's great that there are so many of us and that there's an openness about it. Like, you can be a witch in Salem. And yes, there are people who, and just for, you know, ease of terminology here, I'm going to call them muggles, you know, the non-witch people. Um, they don't necessarily love all the witchy stuff that's happening here, but it's a pretty safe place to be a witch. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, because it's a place that has um, built an economy around that, there are a lot of people running witchcraft businesses and, you know, politics and fear of scarcity is something that really becomes a factor. And so you get those egos battling, uh, you know, about witchcraft, which is supposed to be something that is, you know, bringing us all closer to, you know, divine and togetherness with each other and instead it's creating fighting so that's definitely something that we will be exploring as we you know in future episodes as we talk about yeah. <laughs> what it's like to be a witch in Salem yeah um, and I think that um I, I think that uh, I think we were talking about this a few weeks ago where um there's so many witches in Salem it becomes its own problem that um that's just like that there are so many different well this is my way of doing this and so when doing group rituals it's really about um you know it's about finding commonalities right and i think that because there are so many different people here and there's so many different paths that it, it it's a it's a blessing and a curse at the same time right that it's like oh there's so many opportunities but which one do i pick which and, you know, do I align with a group or, you know, do I do my own thing? Um, do I start my own group and look for people to join me or do I join someone else's group? Can I do both at the same time? Like you were saying, you don't have to belong to just one thing. Right. So I think that, um, I think that those are all things that um, are, I think they're, they're issues everywhere, but mm -hmm. they are particularly in a, you know, Salem is called Witch City. Right. <laughs> our our high school mascot is the witches. Right. Um, our police and fire engines have witches riding brooms on them. Um, yeah, <laughs> our taxis. We have Witch City Taxi with yeah, you some know, problematic imagery of witches that you know we don't have to get into right now. There but, um, is there's a grower school called Witchcraft Heights Elementary. Right. Um, yeah, so. I, I live in Witchcraft Heights. Yeah. We are in Witchcraft Heights right now, which I have to say is a little. It's kind of cool, you know. Yeah. So, um, although I had a. a a coworker moved to town who is not a witch in any way and you know he moved into one of the developments that were built um like you know in the the 70s and he's like he's living on cauldron court right yes that's so. what i was thinking of there's cauldron court there's witch way yep yeah 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 so um 
Yeah, in the 70s, we can we should probably have a whole episode on the history of Salem and how Salem like transfer transformed murdering 20 people or 19 people uh, in the 1600s um, for being accused of witchcraft to having a month-long celebration of Halloween every October. Right. Um, and, and that history <laughs> is not that old. If you look back at old, you know, adventurers from like the 80s and 90s, there wasn't all this happening. Yeah. So this is actually pretty recent. Definitely. It's like, it was, what I've been told is like, it's happened after that Bewitched episode aired in the 70s. That like, that this stuff really started, the haunting happening started in the 80s, but, very but small. even then, yeah, yeah. If, you, if you look at the event schedule for some of the old, I actually saw an old like leaflet. Weekend. It was, it was much, <laughs> it was not what it is today. And so, you know, there's this uh, story about, you know, Lori Cabot being sort of the first public witch in the U.S., and she absolutely was. She opened the first witch store, and she did all this while it was illegal, so she did, she p really put herself out there and was at the forefront of this movement to make witchcraft safe for, you know, the rest of us, and, you know, I say safe with an asterisk because there's still plenty of, you know, discrimination and stigma, um, you know, which is why, you know, even within our own episode, you know, I use my full name and you don't, and that's okay mm -hmm. because that's just the reality of being a witch. And for me, you know, as someone who owns a business in Salem, who is a public person, it was not an easy decision, mm -hmm. but I got to a point where I was like, you know what? I didn't move to Salem to be in the room <clears throat> closet. You know, that's my decision. Right. But, and I will say, I don't, uh, I'm using, uh, on the, our website, you can see I list myself as Rebecca Heather, which is my first and middle names. I don't. I mean, it's not, my last name is Murphy. That's not like a secret, yeah. but, um, it was a decision I made because my, my full-time job is I run a web development company and, um, it's basically, I don't want Google to be confused. Yeah. I'm not particularly worried about my clients finding out that I'm a witch. Like that doesn't bother me, but, um, but yeah, so it's like, it's, if I give out a business card that says Rebecca Murphy on it, I don't want somebody Googling me and then finding this first. Yeah. And that is, but, but, but yes, you're right. That is like, you know, somewhat like, it's, it's, I'm trying to keep those two sides separate. Right. And I did for a long time too, until I realized that I, you know, it just didn't make sense for my life anymore. But that is, that is a struggle. And, you know, before, you know, now I run a shop in Salem. And before I was doing that, I was working as a professional architect, and I didn't necessarily need people going on the internet and being like, oh, what's that crazy architect doing in, you know, her spare time? Um, so, you know, now my life is different, and I can do that, but there's still some pushback because, you know, my, my shop is a combination of, you know, witch store and yarn shop, and I do have people who come who are, you know, they're my yarnies, and they're wonderful, but they hate that witchy side of Salem, so... Mm -hmm. Even though I am pretty open, there's still a bit of that, that fear of that, you know, that stigma and how that's going to impact things. Mm -hmm. So do you want to talk about solstice? Yeah, so now that we've uh, spent a half hour sort of telling you folks about our past, but maybe we should, you know, go back and talk about how we met. So to kind of sure. finalize that, you know, because I, you know, I am someone who has... Um, you know, I've been initiated in two different t traditions. I have, you know, a lineage. I still, you know, I, I see value in initiatory paths, but that doesn't mean that I'm, you know, closed off and unwilling to work with people who I think are approaching it from a legitimate place. And, you know, you were talking about that idea of commonalities. You know, I think that you and I have very different backgrounds, but we are able to be, you know, within sacred space together because we understand that the goal there is, you know, that connection. It's not, you know, the, the goal there is inclusion, not exclusion. Right. So. So we met through tarot cards. Yeah, so, yeah, I was trying to remember if I met you first at the tarot meetup or if I met you first while teaching, 
but it was... I think it was tarot, because I already knew you when I took the, the classes that you had on, like the lotions and potions class that you did. Yeah. Yeah, so we, uh, so Becca and I uh, used to go to a monthly tarot gathering, and now I actually um, host my own at my shop, but that's how we first met, and then met Becca. I know that you took my um, herbal lotions class. Did you take the, the I did, spell doll making I one did the too? Whole, I did the whole series. I did yeah. the weaving. I did, um, I have, I still have the weaving piece that I did hanging up my front hall. Good. Um, but yeah, I did the, the whole series. It was like three or five. I don't, it was like. I don't know, it was like three years ago, I don't remember. Right, yeah, so yeah. So we've known each other for about three years, and um, we are both super nerdy about witchcraft research, and so we decided that maybe other people want to listen to us babble about it a whole bunch. <laughs> <laughs> and so, since it is the solstice, let's talk about how we celebrate the solstice in our traditions. Um, so, uh, for myself, I think the solstice has always been a... Um, a family-oriented tradition, um, and it really is about the returning of the light, it's about the returning of the sun. So I do a lot of candle work and a lot of like you know burning bay leaves with you know, you know wishes for the next year on them. Um, I also um, I like to cook food that is solar related. Like I have this recipe for an orange upside down cake. So mm -hmm. it looks like a whole bunch of little suns on it when you flip it over. And so we are having that, right? Yes. Yes, I will be making <laughs> <Hooray>! it. Hooray! <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's spiced with cardamom. Um, Wonderful. Um, so it's, so I think, you know, personally it's, um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a small family, it's a family thing, um, but very fire and light. Um, I do, still celebrate um, Christmas with my family, um, none of whom are still Catholic. Uh -huh. um, like I said, my mom is a Quaker. I think all my sisters are atheists um, and think it's quite cute that I believe in things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's adorable that you have faith. Um, but um, yeah, so I think one of the other things I, uh, that is related to the solstice is um, the idea of the new year and not necessarily um, the, um, the calendar new year, but a religious new year, which I celebrate on the first new moon after the solstice. Okay. So you um, don't yeah. count Samhain as your new year? No, no. Mm -hmm. So um, in the, the Hellenic tradition, um, one thing about those calendars is that it is um, every city-state had their own calendar. So when people say, well, according to the Attic calendar, it has to be a book. Like, okay, so that was one Athens didn't even have one calendar. Like, everyone had their own thing. And, but the new moon is usually the first, the, the new year is usually the first new moon after a solar holiday. So, um, in Athens, it was celebrated after the, sol uh, after the summer solstice. In, I think, Sparta, it was celebrated after the winter solstice. Some of them would celebrate it after the, the spring or the fall equinox. Um, so it really depended on where you were, what they decided, but it's pretty common for, um, for modern practitioners to incorporate local customs into your own personal religious calendar. So, you know, the United States has the new year on January 1st, um, so putting the religious new year near there just kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. and. Um, as you know, I, part of my lunar calendar on the, the new moon is very much about, you know, cleansing from the past month and preparing for the new month and 
the new year also being on a new moon is just like that, but you know, you know times 10 or mm-hmm. <laughs> like times 13, I guess, for the moons. So. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned this idea that every sort of city-state had their own calendar because the idea of practice within context is super important. And as someone who, you know, started studying witchcraft in the Southern Hemisphere, that comes up a lot because, you know, we have the Wheel of the Year and that's based on a Northern Hemisphere calendar. And Mm -hmm. so one of the big debates in witchcraft in the Southern Hemisphere is do you flip the Wheel of the Year or not? I say flip it. (laughs) (laughs) Which is funny because I never did. Yeah. you know, I moved here, so mm-hmm. this, you know, the, the Northern Hemisphere Wheel of the Year makes sense for me. Right. But, you know, for me, I do consider Samhain to be the new year. And so, uh, you know, the solstice, Yule, to me, is, you know, the, for the first Sabbath after that. And for me, it, it also is about the returning of the light. Um, and so, for me, I think coming for, you know, from a more traditional background, and I say traditional just because that's the word that's, you know, that makes it easy to understand, and not that I'm saying traditional is you know, more valid, mm-hmm. but is, uh, you know, I've sort of summarized sort of um, two main thought patterns within sort of a Celtic base, you know, like Wicca-esque witchcraft, and it's that the Wheel of the Year either has a more masculine bend to it, where you're celebrating, you know, the, Hoka, the Oak and the Holly King and mm-hmm. their struggle for power, and then there is the perspective that prioritizes the divine feminine, where you have the goddess uh, who is self-rejuvenating, going through the cycles of you know mother, um, maiden mother to crone, and rejuvenating herself. And the goddess, her consort, who you know dies and mm-hmm. is reborn. And in my tradition, it's this latter one that we focus on. So this idea of the goddess being the constant, you know, because it is mm-hmm. a Dianic tradition, and that just means that it is female divine focused. Um, not that we worship Diana because we do have a, a Celtic pantheon that we mostly work with, but it's this idea of, uh, you know, the god as the consort. So the god dies at Samhain and he is reborn at Yule through the goddess. So it is that return of, you know, the young god. But I don't celebrate the, you know, the power struggle between Oak and Holly King. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely about that idea of, you know, the sun being reborn. And one tradition that I've really uh, sort of enjoyed and really incorporated into my personal practice is that idea of the Yule yell. And it's that idea of, uh, you know, it's just screaming at the top of your lungs to bring back the light. That's something that we've done in ritual where, you know, Mm -hmm. everyone together, uh, you know, puts their voices in, you start yelling, you know, kind of at a very low volume and build up. And when everyone's screaming, that's when you have the ritual rebirth of the sun. So that for me is something that you know, when I describe it like that, it sounds a little strange. I realize that, but I find that it's really empowering to have that Yule yell. And that, mm-hmm. So that for me is something that I I really make sure to have every time that I celebrate the winter solstice. Yeah, one, um, one solstice uh, festival from antiquity that I don't personally incorporate, it's more Roman than Greek, but which would be Saturnalia. I'm pronouncing that wrong. Saturnalia, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is obviously a feast to the god Saturn, who's uh, equated with Kronos in Greece. And I say equated with because people are like, oh, this is their Greek name. So they're, they're, they're pretty, a lot of the gods are quite different. It's just that the kind of um, school kid mythology that we're taught uh, squishes them all together into a neat package where, you know, they're, the Greek and the Roman gods have a lot of uh, dissimilarities. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of Saturnalia um, is interesting because it's about flipping social norms. And um, 
it was a time of the year when uh, the masters would wait on their servants. Um, it was a time that, uh, to a certain extent, laws could be broken, um, but you know only for the end of that festival, and people would know about it. It wasn't like the purge that you got away with anything. Right. <laughs> it was, it was you know people people knew what you did during it, and you know small things would be overlooked, but you know big things you'd get in trouble for afterwards. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was a time that you know it was really it was about flipping social norms, and that the people in power weren't in power, and that the 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 underprivileged of society, because the society was very stratified, um, that would really rise up and you know be able to. Um, in some places, the the masters would feed their servants or slaves. Um, in other places, that you know the, the servants or slaves simply eat first, and they mm -hmm. would have you know a big meal like um, would usually be cooked for uh, the rich people. Um, but I, and it kind of leads into um, the medieval idea of like the Lord of Misrule, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, so these ideas do kind of keep morphing and keep turning into their own thing as they go through the ages, um, as they encounter other civilizations and, um, you know, they bump up into things and things brush off and things cling <laughs> and they become, you know, a new thing mm -hmm. that is... You can recognize its origins, but it's not the same thing anymore. So I know that some people do still celebrate some version of Saturnalia, mm -hmm. um, and I keep pronouncing that wrong, and someone will correct me, I'm sure. But <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I, I think, obviously, it's easier to do with a larger group of per people when you don't have a large community that you're practicing this with. One person saying, I'm the lord of this rule, is just really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> you, have, you have to have buy-in from the people around you, which I think is, going back to, like, living in Salem, I think that that is one of the definite plus sides, is that it's easier to get buy-in from the people around you, mm -hmm. um, that, uh, to, to do whatever you are wanting to do, like, oh, I want to, like, you know, do this ritual for this thing, and you can, you can probably get a group together for that. There's, probably, there's, yeah. Probably, yeah, I had actually... Uh, sort of off-topic story, but um, so I was, me and my backyard were in a episode of, uh, I think it's called Mysteries Unveiled, uh, because someone from the community that I know, who will probably show up on this podcast later, had been, uh, you know, contracted by them to host a ritual for them to film for this episode, and at the last minute, the place where he was supposed to have it wasn't happening, and so he put out a message, like, does anyone have a backyard? And I'm like, I do. Like, I didn't really know what I was signing up for, so now there's footage of me, you know, in full robes, drumming in my backyard in this ritual. Yeah. And, you know, this is something that sort of got thrown together within, like, a half hour of panic of someone looking for a place, mm -hmm. and I think that it would be harder to do that not in Salem. Yeah. <laughs> so I definitely appreciate that, and I guess... That leads me to the comment of show notes. I guess we're going to have show notes somewhere, so I can definitely link to this episode if anyone's curious. We can, of course, link to Lori's book since we mentioned that and mm -hmm. to the uh, Eight Sabbaths of the yeah. Witch. I'm probably butchering the, the, uh, the, the title right now. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Eight, Eight Sabbaths, Sabbaths for, for Witches. witches. Yes. yes. Uh, we can put all those links in there. Um, but, yeah, was there anything else we wanted to share about I, the solstice? No, I, I think we're good. Yeah. So... Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in to our first ever episode. I hope that you all have a wonderful solstice, whether you're lighting some candles, whether you're going to be yelling along with me. Uh, Becca and I are going to enjoy some amazing cake 
that I'm not going to share with anyone. Um, <laughs> and in our second episode, we're actually going to have a guest. We're going to be uh, speaking to our friend, Lauren Devora, who is also a local witch. Uh, she's also a tarot reader. All three of us are tarot readers. We actually all read tarot at the same place. And um, Lauren you know, has a completely different background than we do. She's a, a Bane worker, and she's just amazing. So we're going to be talking to her next time about what her witchcraft practice entails. So we hope you'll tune in then. And if you have any questions or comments for us, please email us at askawitch at witchcitywitches.com. Follow us on Instagram at witchcitywitches. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, everybody.